Chapter Thirty of Gold by Stuart Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The fight. We ate a very silent supper, washed our dishes methodically, and walked up to town. The Bella Union was the largest of the three gambling houses, a log and canvas structure some forty feet long by perhaps twenty wide. A bar extended across one end, and the gaming tables were arranged down the middle. A dozen oil lamps with reflectors furnished illumination. All five tables were doing a brisk business. When we paused at the door for a preliminary survey, the bar was lined with drinkers, and groups of twos and threes were slowly sauntering here and there, or conversing at the tops of their voices with many guffaws. The air was thick with tobacco smoke. Johnny stepped just inside the door, moved sideways, and so stood with his back to the wall. His keen eyes went from group to group slowly, resting for a moment in turn on each of the five impassive gamblers and their lookouts, on the two barkeepers, and then, one by one, on the men with whom the place was crowded. Following his, my glance recognized at the corner of the bar Danny Randall with five rough-looking miners. He caught my eye and nodded. No one else appeared to notice us, though I imagined the noise of the place sank and rose again at the first moment of our entrance. Jim said Johnny to me quietly, there's Danny Randall at the other end of the room. Go join him. I want you to leave me to play my own game. I started to object. Please do as I say, insisted Johnny. I can take care of myself unless there's a general row. In that case, all my friends are better together. Without further protest, I left him and edged my way to the little group at the end of the bar. Randall nodded to me as I came up and motioned to the barkeeper to set me out a glass, but said nothing. Ours was the only lot away from the gaming tables not talking. We sipped our drink and watched Johnny. After surveying coolly the room, Johnny advanced to the farther of the gambling tables and began to play. His back was toward the entrance. The game was roulette, and Johnny tossed down his bets methodically, studying with apparent absorption each shift of the wheel. To all appearance he was intent on the game, and nothing else, and he talked and laughed with his neighbors and the dealer as though his spirit were quite carefree. For ten minutes we watched. Then a huge figure appeared in the blackness of the doorway, slipped through, and instantly to one side, so that his back was to the wall. Scarface Charlie had arrived. He surveyed the place as we had done, almost instantly caught sight of Johnny, and immediately began to make his way across the room through the crowd of loungers. Johnny was laying a bet, bending over the table, joking with the impassive dealer, his back turned to the door, totally oblivious of his enemy's approach. I started forward, instantly realized the hopelessness of either getting quickly through that crowd or of making myself heard, and leaned back, clutching the rail with both hands. Johnny was hesitating, his hand hovering uncertainly above the marked squares of the layout, in doubt exactly where to bet. Scarface Charlie shouldered his way through the loungers and reached the clear space 
immediately behind his unconscious victim. He stopped for an instant, squared his shoulders, and took one step forward. Johnny dropped his chips on the felt layout, contemplated his choice an instant, and suddenly whirled on his heel in a lightning about face. Although momentarily startled by this unexpected evidence that Johnny was not so far off guard as he had seemed, the desperado's hand dropped swiftly to the butt of his pistol. At the same instant, Johnny's arm snapped forward in the familiar motion of drawing from the sleeve. The motion started clean and smooth, but halfway through, caught, dragged, halted. I gasped aloud, but had time for no more than that. Scarface Charlie's revolver was already on the leap. Then, at last, Johnny's derringer appeared, apparently as the result of a desperate effort. Almost with the motion, it barked, and the big man whirled to the floor, his pistol already at half-raise, clattering away. The whole episode, from the beginning, occupied the space of two eye-winks. Probably no one but myself and Danny Randall could have caught the slight hitch in Johnny's draw, and indeed, I doubt if anybody saw whence he had snatched the derringer. A complete silence fell. It could have lasted only an instant, but Johnny seized that instant. "'Has this man any friends here?' he asked clearly. His head was back, and his snapping black eyes seemed to see everywhere at once. No one answered or stirred. Johnny held them for perhaps ten seconds, then deliberately turned back to the table. "'That's my bet on the evening,' he said. "'Let her roll.' The gambler lifted his face, white, in the brilliant illumination directly over his head, and I thought to catch a flicker of something like admiration in his passionless eyes. Then with his left hand he spun the wheel. The soft, dull whir and tiny clicking of the ball as it rebounded from the metal grooves struck across the tense stillness, as though this was the releasing signal a roar of activity burst forth. Men all talked at once. The other tables and the bar were deserted, and everybody crowded down toward the lower end of the room. Danny Randall and his friends rushed determinedly to the center of disturbance. Some men were carrying out Scarface Charlie. Others were talking excitedly. A little clear space surrounded the roulette table, at which, as may be imagined, Johnny was now the only player. Quite methodically, he laid three more bets. I think that's enough for now, he told the dealer pleasantly, and turned away. Hello, Randall. Hello, Frank, he greeted us. I just won three bets straight. Let's have a drink. Bring your friends, he told Randall. We turned toward the bar, and way was instantly made for us. Johnny poured himself a big drink of whiskey. A number of curious men mere boys, most of them, had crowded close after us and were standing staring at Johnny with a curiosity they made slight attempt to conceal. Johnny suddenly turned to them, holding high his whiskey in a hand as steady as a rock. Here's the crime, boys, he said, and drank it down at a gulp. Then he stood staring them uncompromisingly in the face until they had slunk away. He called for and drank another whiskey, then abruptly moved toward the door. I think I'll go turn in, said he. At the door he stopped. 
Good night, he said to Randall and his friends who had followed us. No, I'm obliged to you, he replied to his suggestion, but I need no escort. And he said it so firmly that all but Randall went back. I'm going to your camp with you, whether you need an escort or not, said the latter. Without a word, Johnny walked away down the street, very straight. We hurried to catch up with him, and just as we did so, he collapsed to the ground and was suddenly and violently sick. As I helped him to his feet, I could feel that his arm was trembling violently. Lord, fellas, I'm ashamed, he gasped a little hysterically. I didn't know I had so little nerve. Nerve? Suddenly roared Danny Randall. Confound your confounded impudence. If I ever hear you say another word like that, I'll put a head on you, if it's the last act of my life. You're the gamest little chicken in this roost, and I'll make you beg like a hound if you say you aren't. Johnny laughed a little uncertainly over this contradiction. Did I kill him, he asked. No, worse luck. Just bored him through the collarbone. That heavy little derringer ball knocked him out. I'm glad of that, said Johnny. Which I am not, stated Danny Randall with emphasis. You ought to have killed him. Thanks to you, I wasn't killed myself. I couldn't have hoped to get the draw on him with my holster gun. He's as quick as a snake. I thought you were going to bungle it, said Randall. What was the matter? Front sight caught at the edge of my sleeve. I had to tear it loose by main strength. I'm going to file it off. What's the use of a front sight at close range? I heaved a deep sigh. Well, I don't want to ever be so scared again, I confessed. Will you tell me, by all that's holy, why you turned your back on the door? Well, said Johnny seriously, I wanted to get him close to me. If I had shown him that I'd seen him when he first came in the door, he'd have opened fire at once, and I'm a rotten shot. But I figured that if he thought I didn't see him, he'd come across the room to me. But he nearly got you by surprise. Oh, no, said Johnny. I saw him all the time. I got his reflection from the glass over that picture of the beautiful lady sitting on the old crow whiskey barrel. That's why I picked out that table. My son, cried Danny Randall delightedly, you're a true sport. You've got a head, you have. Well, said Johnny, I figured I'd have to do something. I'm such a rotten shot. End of chapter 30